You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> to end this metaphysical quest with our favorite speed junkie, sadomasochist nihilists, <laughs> who, who only shrieks feedback at our unblinking faces while the abyss surrounds us with the intensity of a black hole of agony and unrepented hostility. No, of course I'm not ready for it to be over, but I'm also ready for it to be over, but I'm also not ready because, my God, I love the Velvet Underground now more than I ever have! <laughs> <laughs> So you're ready and not ready. I'm ready and not ready. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we are here at the end of our series on the Velvet Underground. This is part five. This is the ultimate episode. This is the last episode of the Velvet Underground and probably the last five-parter we're ever going to do <laughs> ever again. Goddamn, I hope so. Yeah. But thank you everyone so much for coming on this journey with us. It's been a hell of a time. Yes, thank so- you. So when we last left the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed had unceremoniously dumped the band's co-founder, John Cale. To make matters worse, Lou hadn't even done it himself. Instead, he'd made guitarist Sterling Morrison do it. That's why there was no ceremony. <laughs> yeah, it's you do it. Yeah, yeah, on your way to get toilet paper. Like, it was like an errand. <laughs> yeah. Now, usually the loss of a band's co-founder is devastating to a band's momentum, especially a band as groundbreaking as the Velvets. But one of the advantages of being a pioneer is that there are really no rules. This, of course, also unfortunately works as a disadvantage because there aren't many guidelines either. But the point here is that the band barely missed a beat upon John Cale's exit. His last show was on September 28, 1968 at the Boston Tea Party. And by October 4th, less than a week later, the Velvets were playing their next scheduled gig with a 21-year-old Bostonian named Doug Yule. Rebound. <laughs> it works. It works. Sometimes. Yes. Well, Doug Yule, actually, he wasn't a Bostonian. He was living in Boston at the time. Uh, he was actually from, funny enough, Great Neck, New York. 
So just like Lou Reed, Mo Tucker, Sterling Morrison, Doug was born and raised in Long Island. That's insane. This is a Long Island band, <laughs> along with like Twisted Sister and Public Enemy. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. I never knew that Long Island had such a storied history of music. They do. Cr- Mariah Carey. <laughs> it, the list goes on and on and on. Okay, so so Doug was from Long Island, but he did go to Boston University to study acting, which he said he was terrible at. Okay. Which I, I actually like that. I like when people are like, I'm not good at this, so I'm going to just spend four years immersed in this. <laughs> to try to get better, maybe. Yeah, yeah well, he just dropped it immediately. Okay. Um, yeah, no, he's like, I'm going to focus on playing in rock bands since that's the thing I'm actually good at. Uh, and, and Doug was. like he's He was a very skilled musician who practiced ever since he was a kid. Uh, he's one of those guys that kind of like he can pick up any instrument and just play it and play it well and read and write music easily so so, but right now he is playing electric guitar in the small town local bostonian band called the grass menagerie are you fucking get the grass menagerie I love it. I love it. Whatever you're going to say, it's wrong. All right, fine. No, but you know, it, it's a play. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Isn't it the Tennyson? The Tennessee Williams play. Tennessee the, gla- Williams. the Glass Menagerie. Yes. But, like, but like, what if we like, called it like the Grass Menagerie? Yeah, we're the psychedelic stooges. I mean, everyone has, you know, the yeah. warlocks. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, we're the warlocks. I mean, it's. Yeah, the, everyone's first band does have a fucking god awful name. That's true. <laughs> That's true. So, so Doug Yule was living with his band members uh, in this apartment on River Street, which is actually where he met the Velvet Underground. Mm. Because remember, the Velvet Underground would play in Boston all the time instead of New York City, where they actually lived. Because, as we said before, they're like, uh, we don't like you guys. We're going to go to Boston. We're going to commute. I mean, to be fair, Boston was the city that welcomed them with open arms. I mean, New York was, I mean, it's so funny how New York was like a little too cool for the coolest band to ever exist. Yes. But Boston, for some reason, like it just fucking hit so hard. Yes, absolutely. And so whenever the Velvet Underground would go to Boston, they would spend their weekends like performing there. Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison, they would sometimes crash at the River Street apartment Mm. where Doug was living with his friends in the bands because the Velvet Underground knew the grass menageries. (laughs) Uh, managers. I know, I can't say it with a straight face either. It's still a good name. I still okay. like it. I don't know why, but maybe you could explain it to me later. Because it's so hard to... <laughs> like that idea I had for that uh, the TV show, right? The uh-huh. Late Owl Hour That's... show that I hosted by Carolina Hidalgo that yeah. never got off the ground. Yeah, of course, because it's got a terrible name. The Late Owl Hour show. <laughs> late Owl, because it's a late night. Because you never got to actually talking about the show because you spent so much time explaining what the name was. Well, we should introduce our house band, The Grass Menagerie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, so Doug Yule kind of knew the Velvet Underground already. Yeah. Like in passing, like, hey, how's it going? You sleeping on my couch? Cool. Are you going to finish all my cereal? <laughs> that kind of stuff. So they were kind of more like acquaintances, really. Yeah. Which is why it was kind of a surprise when one day Doug gets a call from the Velvet Underground's manager, Steve Sesnick, asking Doug if he was free to talk about joining the Velvet Underground. And Doug said, yeah, I would love to entertain that idea. Yes. And Sesnick says, okay, great. We're at Max's Kansas City. See you soon. (laughs) And then hangs up. 
And so Doug was like, I'm in Boston. Wow. Okay, all right, I got to go now then. I need to be 200 miles away right now. And luckily, Doug ran into a friend who was just about to drive to New York City. So Doug asked him for a ride, and his friend said, yeah, sure, but we're leaving now. So Doug just grabbed his keys, and he didn't even shower. He just got up and left, and he went straight to New York to the famous Max's Kansas City and had a meeting with Sesnick, with Lou Reed, and Sterling Morrison. Mm -hmm. And this is before it was like the famous music venue, Max's Kansas City. Yeah, it was a steakhouse. (laughs) You know, it was a place where, I mean, Andy Warhol would hang out there all the time. The factory would hang out there. And obviously, Velvet Underground, it it was their local haunt. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, come to our office and have this meeting with us. (laughs) And honestly, just like that, Doug was in the band. And according to Doug, there, there was no audition or tryouts. He was just in. But there was a catch, and that was that he had to play bass since, you know, Lou and Sterling are are, are already playing guitar in the band. And Doug said, sure, yeah, I'll play anything you want. I've never even picked up a bass guitar, but I know I'll I'll play the shit out of that. Yeah. You know, because he remembered his training from like the fourth grade. He's like, yeah, I I play the baritone horn. It can't be the heart. That's crazy. Yeah, he's like, I can handle it. (laughs) But that's the thing. Doug was very skilled, like I said. He was also easy and flexible. Yeah. And that's why they picked Doug to join the Velvet Underground. I mean, he was younger than them by like five years. He was eager to please and and follow Lou and whatever needed to be done, which made Lou very happy. Of Of course. course. Yes, (laughs) we know. We know. And, And Lou was also happy to hear that Doug was a Pisces. This is the dumbest thing about Doug you'll be brought into the band. We're in the age of Aquarius, man. (laughs) This is how it is, man. And it works because Lou Reed is a Pisces too, man. You're a Pisces. I'm a Pisces. And Mo and Sterling, both Virgos. Uh So you see, it works. This Pisces-Virgo group made sense to them. Oh, that's why like shit was all like fucked up with John Cale because it was like out of balance, right? He was Capricorn. (laughs) Actually, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know either. I, I believe maybe. Yeah. So anyway, so so straight straight from that meeting at Max's Kansas City, Doug went with Lou to Lou's apartment where they spent the next two days going over the songs that Doug needed to learn for their next gig that weekend. So Doug got a call on Wednesday afternoon. He left immediately, had a meeting that night, went to Lou's, learned songs for in 48 hours and went straight to Cleveland with them on their next gig. I don't even think he's showered yet. <laughs> Not since Tuesday. He hasn't been home. He has no clothes or toiletries. I hope he doesn't have a cat <laughs> or a goldfish. They're, they're dead. No, nah, he's got room. That guy like that's got seven roommates. Yeah, his bandmates. I'm sorry, his old bandmates now. <laughs> sorry, just make sure you feed them. Okay. Yes, you're my old bandmates now. <laughs> And they understand. They understand. Bella Underground, like, they're hugely popular in in the Boston area. This is a really big opportunity for Doug Yule. It's fucking crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, out of all the reasons Carolina mentioned as to why Doug Yule was brought into the band, perhaps the most important was Doug's naivete. See, Lou Reed wasn't looking for another John Cale to take the Velvet Underground deeper into the wild and woolly wilderness of experimentation. Instead, Lou wanted to turn the Velvet Underground into the rock and roll band that was going to propel him to stardom, or perhaps more importantly, allow him to be seen as a respected writer like his mentor Delmore Schwartz. Yes, Delmore Schwartz being a, a poet, uh, you know, also his old college professor, mm-hmm. not a rock and roll star. <laughs> no, actually a man who actively hated rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> and really, this is one of the most important pieces of Lou's ego to understand. It's not that Lou Reed was precious about his place in the band as a singer or as a guitarist. Rather, 
Lou Reed was precious with how the lyrics he wrote were being presented on the album, the publication, as it were. For example, Lou bristled when Nico was first brought into the band to sing the lyrics that Lou had written for himself to sing, because he knew exactly how he wanted those lyrics to be interpreted, especially on songs like I'm Waiting for the Man. But once Nico was in the band, Nico. <laughs> once Nico was in the band, <laughs> Lou didn't mind Nico singing Femme Fatale because Lou wrote Femme Fatale for Nico to sing. It was his choice. Ergo, when it came time to record the third Velvet Underground album, Lou Reed didn't mind Doug Yule singing Lou's songs because it was Lou Reed's choice to have Doug sing those songs. Oh, there's a pattern here. Yes. There's a pattern. It's what Lou wants to do. Yeah, and it, you know, and that's the thing is that John Cale, even on the album before on White Light, White Heat, like he did The Gift. He did Lady Godiva's Operation. Like he, uh, Lou Reed had no problem giving songs. He just had a problem with people taking songs. And amazingly, Doug Yule was only in the band for a few shows before the new lineup traveled to Los Angeles to record that third album, the self-titled Velvet Underground. Now, while that is one of the best Velvet Underground songs, or at least one of my favorites, you'll notice that the tone of the recording has vastly changed from the filthy fuzz noise of White Light, White Heat. With the third album, the Velvets produced the quietest record of their relatively short but prolific career. Yeah, because remember we said on part four that when the band recorded their previous album, there was so much tension that the high octane rage cloud that they have <laughs> over them like seeped into the recording. Yeah. And then we could hear that because that's how they made the spaghetti, right? <laughs> how they made their music so good. Yeah. No, yeah. That's part of why White Light White Heat is such a fucking fantastic album. Yes, because they got three different ideas from three incredibly stubborn creative personalities <laughs> who tend to clash a lot. Yeah. And you put them in a pot. You simmer for days, mm-hmm. and then, and I don't know, I don't know. And, the, and you get Sister Ray. You get Sister Ray. You get sucking on my ding-dong. You, you get you get a big explosion in your face, <laughs> but you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Okay, so, but now, now it's different. Now Lou Reed is cementing his leadership, like his role in the band. Yeah. And so now there's one main idea, and that's Lou's idea, because 
Remmer Sterling is still resentful of Lou for kicking John Cale out of the band and making him do it himself. It's like, I have enough errands to run. You know? <laughs> and, and even though Sterling's still working on the songs and he's contributing a lot to the album, Sterling's just not fighting for it anymore. He just, he's losing his passion. He's not particularly inspired in the new stuff that they're working on anyways. He's just like, all right, so like, what are we going to play uh, next? Into which Lou responds with, whatever we want, uh. which is nice. Like They would go into the studio and work on whatever ever they felt like working on that particular night like there was very little resistance and they all got along well enough to put together a more subdued album yes because that's how the tension was broken (laughs) and that's how they were just subdued now and the recording process this time around was just it was just easy easy going with Lou Reed. Yeah. <laughs> they were having fun. Hey, as long as he's in charge, yeah, everyone's... That's the kind of guy Lou Reed is, is that as long as everybody's doing what he wants to do and how he thinks it should be done, that everyone's having a great fucking time. But you get that little twinge of disagreement and all of a sudden... I mean, it's white light, white heat. And it's it's fucking, great. It's also great. Yeah, it's also great. But yeah, but it's going to be a little quieter if you just say, yes, Lou. Very good, Lou. I will do that, Lou. Yeah, why not? Why not some soft and pretty songs? Why not? Why not? Why no, and these are some soft, pretty, and grand songs, too. And even though this is the quietest Velvet Underground album, not every song is as sedate as the classic Pale Blue Eyes. Of course, that's on this album, and we already discussed that song in the first episode in relation to Lou Reed's first romantic muse, Shelley Alba. Besides beginning to see the light, there's another louder track with Doug Yule on organ and both Lou and Sterling playing dual guitar solos that sound like bagpipes when they intertwine with each other. Because even though Sterling Morrison is still saying like, you know, yeah, I'll do what you want. He's still Sterling fucking Morrison. Yes. He's still (laughs) an amazing guitarist. Yeah. And I actually think that this song shows that while the Velvets were still breaking new ground without John Cale, they were also starting to pay a little more attention to what was hip in 1968. That song, my favorite on this record, was What Goes On. Swinging dick of a song. I <laughs> love that swinging dick of a song. It's a swinging dick of a song. It is swinging dick of a song. That's what I, I like that when, you know like what goes on is just it's it's such a cool. It's just cool, like you know, and it's you know it and it's musically uh, brilliant the way those guitars interplay with each other to create a sound that is still entirely new. Um, I mean, that tells you that, like, you know, John Cale, they definitely missed something when John Cale left, yes. but it's not like all of the fucking genius left the room. Like, these Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison were still, like, 
some of the best musicians of the 60s. That's true. I mean, it was you could hear it there. You could hear it in the music. Yeah. Like there is so much to it. I I, I don't I'm just using my hands. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. Yeah. But the majority of the songs are quiet. Perhaps the lowest energy track on the record is the surprising ballad, Jesus, sensitively played without any percussion at all. The character in this song pleads with Jesus for redemption. But what's refreshing is that it's just a character. This isn't a praiseful song at all. This isn't a gospel. This isn't a hymn. Instead, it features a man struggling with his faith, treated with sympathy by Lou Reed instead of the easier judgment of derision. It's a beautiful song. Hmm. Jesus, help me find my proper place. Jesus, help me find my proper place. Help me in my weakness, cause I've fallen. background vocals and that guy could fucking sing yeah that was really nice <laughs> what happened to my nihilists <laughs> what happened to my rage inducing speed freaks <laughs> they're expanding oh good they're exploring yes they're growing oh okay now while pale blue eyes and beginning to see the light get most of the attention on this record i think the last two tracks deserve a hell of a lot more talk for being decades ahead of their time track nine a creepy little number called Murder Mystery sounds like Ray Manzrick from The Doors guesting on a Sonic Youth track from 1992 with featured vocals from an early to mid-2000s female indie darling. That's a tall order if I can get it to you in 48 hours. <laughs> Just listen. Listen to what I'm saying here. So if you're listening on your headphones or your earphones, on the left side, it starts with Sterling Morrison reciting his words fast while Lou on the right side is reading his poem, but slower. Yeah. And then Mo and Doug come in singing Mo on the left and, and Doug on the right. So the point of this was to have two different poems, one on each side, and then they somehow weave in together like two guitar parts weaving together. Mm, but like it, what goes on. Exactly. But it ended up being annoying. <laughs> Yeah, I understand if you don't like that. Like, if you don't yeah. like Murder Mystery and you're like, that song sucks, I get it. I'm just saying, like, that the shit that they were doing back then, like, was, you know, people were doing that same thing years, decades later yeah. and calling it new. 
Well, yeah, I know, but I mean, it was still annoying. It was still super annoying. But yeah. it was a new <laughs> annoying yeah. thing. I mean, and Lou Reed even acknowledges that. He's like, listen, it was just something I tried, okay? Yeah. It didn't work. And and that's fine, you know, and we're never performing it live either. Yeah. That's what he said. He's like, it's never going to happen live. Just stop asking. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine because, like you said, like trying out stuff, new stuff, is what they do. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that's not going to discourage Lou. In fact, we're going to try out another thing. Yeah. So at the recording studio, Lou goes to Mo Tucker. He like grabs her by the hand, leads her over to the microphone. Like, come here. I just wrote this song and I think it'll only work if you sing it. And Mo's like, I don't sing. <laughs> I'm the drummer. You know, I, I kind of like standing back a bit. Yeah. And But you know what? With a little bit of encouragement, Mo agreed to get on the mic and she... Tried singing the song a few times. Didn't quite work. Sterling was busy making faces across the control room. <laughs> she was really, really nervous about it. I mean, she'd never done anything like this before. So she said, okay, I'm only doing this if everyone leaves the studio now. Everyone except Lou. So it took a minute. And uh, when she did it, holy crap, did she deliver. Like, this is one of my top three favorite Velvet Underground songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Ever. And it's called After Hours. One, two, three. If you close the door, the night could last forever. Leave the sun shine out and say hello to never. All the people are dancing and they're having such fun. I wish it could happen to me. But if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again. If you close the door, the night could last forever. Leave the wine glass out and drink a toast to never. Oh, someday I know someone will look into my eyes and say hello. You're my very special one But if you close the door I'd never have to see the day again I'm transported back to 2003 Mm. I'm in the back of J&B Coffee Now I'm at Tokyo Joe's Now I'm at Space 1110 And I'm seeing a woman with an acoustic guitar Nice Singing exactly like this Like this, that's the amazing thing about After Hours is that it really took about 30, 40 years for it to break through and for people to hear how amazing that song was and to be truly inspired by it. And once it did, once it did break through, like it inspired an entire, that one song inspired an entire generation of singer-songwriters. It's amazing. I love it. Cool. Are we still in 2003? <laughs> Unfortunately, we are. No, fortunately, we're in 2021. 2003 kind of sucked. What? <laughs> it was It was really fun. 2003 was fun, but you're right. All these really fun songs were like kind of coming around again, and everyone's like, this is cool. Check out my new iPod <laughs> that I have or something. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Now, as we said earlier, Doug Ewell was brand new to the Velvet Underground when the band went into the studio. But surprisingly, the band trusted Ewell with vocals on the album's first track. That one, a continuation of Lou Reed's She Says series, is the tender Candy Says. Candy Says 
We, we, uh, this is part five. So this is like <laughs> this is like the sun is up. <laughs> We've all been drinking all night, and it's just a lone record player while like four people are kind of awake. Yeah, and that's where we are, and we're getting real fucking honest about our feelings. Yes, we are. It's like <laughs> I thought you hated me. No, oh, I'm never gonna forget this, man. And you forget it. Anyway, <laughs> so Candy says, like some of the characters in Lou's songs, uh, Candy is actually a real person. Yeah. Candy Darling, uh, a close friend of Lou's who was transgender, a, a woman who, who felt stuck in living in a man's body. Mm-hmm. And uh, Candy's story is actually very sad. Yes. Uh, she was born James Slattery from Queens, where she was bullied so badly in high school, she was almost lynched. Like they put a Fuck. noose around her neck. And uh, Candy uh, later came to New York City and, and became part of the factory with Andy Warhol and all them and was in a couple of his movies. But unfortunately, she died of cancer in 1974 at the age of 29. Wow. Yeah, so Candy uh, Candy's also mentioned in, uh, you know, the Lou's uh, post-Velvet Underground song, uh, Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Mm-hmm. Like, Candy was definitely also another muse as well. Everybody's darling. Yes, and uh, it, it's a song about someone who looks in the mirror and isn't happy with what they see. Yeah. To which, like, Lou says, like, I don't know a single person who hasn't gone through that. Yeah. And it's true. And and it's a beautiful song. It's a sad song. But it's there's got some hope to it a little bit, tiniest bit, some questions. <laughs> <laughs> and this song was the first time that Doug was ever in front of a microphone in a recording studio. Oh, shit. And so since he was so inexperienced with singing lead, he just, like, focused on, like, singing the words and just getting it right. Because remember, like... He just really got to know them like just a few months ago. Like you're all strangers. <laughs> you know, like who are you people? Like yeah. I, I, you know, we got together in October and now it's December. Yeah, it's so weird. And you want me to sing this extraordinarily tender song about someone's like deepest desires and feelings? Like yes. fuck, okay. Which I believe was Lou Reed's intention. Yes. That to to put. Doug in front of the microphone and, and put him in a very vulnerable spot and singing lyrics he doesn't fully understand since he didn't write them. And I don't think he even knew who Candy was, which worked because the character of Candy in the song is at a place where they're asking questions because they don't understand a lot either. Just being so, very lost. So Lou was like 
this is brilliant. Yeah. It actually made a lot of sense. It did. It, I mean, it really gave the song that extra oomph that it needed because, you know, like people, you know, are lost. It's People are even lost today being transgender, but being transgender in 1969, yeah. that's... No, that's lost. Yes. You know, truly lost. Not having any resources or, or way or any to support. any support at all. So it's a and it was it's a big deal for Lou Reed to write the song in 1970. And so Lou Reed actually broke down a lot of barriers when it came to stuff like that. Now, the reason why Candy Says was the first track on the album is because like the first two records, the order of the songs were terribly important to Lou Reed. See, in those first three records, each song is supposed to complement the one before. For example, on this album, Candy Says has a character asking a lot of general questions. What Goes On asks a specific question. Then, Some Kind of Love and Pale Blue Eyes answer those questions. The first side of the LP then closes with Jesus and opens the B-side with Beginning to See the Light. Ah. Now, later, Lou Reed claimed that the first three Velvet Underground albums all went together in a single suite, a rock opera if you will. <laughs> nice. And while that may be a hindsight coincidence... Yes, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Oh, actually, my entire life's work was completely intentional. Well, I do think that you could lay a plot over these records. And it's quite possible that that plot parallels Lou Reed's life a little bit. It does. It yeah. does. But it's because it comes from his lyrics. It's coming from like the time, like his feeling at that time. He's capturing the moment yeah. in time. So we're actually watching his narrative go by with these songs. Yeah. I mean, from my reading, the first three albums are about a somewhat innocent kid's narrow escape from a world of destructive debauchery and drug abuse. On the Velvet Underground and Nico, this character first falls into a drug scene with heroin and I'm waiting for the man. It's a turbulent life, but it's almost manageable. It's even glamorous at times. You know, all tomorrow's parties. At the very least, the drug life is still in the romantic phase. Then, with White Light, White Heat, the life turns ugly. There's the dirty speed of White Light, White Heat, the confused terror of Lady Godiva's operation, and the illicit fatal sex of Sister Ray. It's a life of detached abandonment, which treats death as a casual occurrence. When John Cale talks about the knife slicing into Waldo's head in The Gift, it's like, and then the knife came down and sliced into his head. And then it doesn't, it, it's <laughs> like it's nothing. That's why I love the Welsh. <laughs> Chopped into little pieces. Anyway, the weather is looking pretty nice today. A balmy 70 degrees with lots of rain in the evening. That is not a Welsh accent at all. At all, at all. I just do a different voice. <laughs> That's it. That's all I can do. But with the third Velvet Underground album, there's a redemption of sorts. The character leaves behind his life of debauchery and oddly finds solace in religion. This is kind of where it's not quite Lou Reed. After the character sees the light, he's finally, quote unquote, set free in the song, I'm set free. But his freedom isn't a positive. Reed spells it out very clearly, almost heavy handedly, singing, I'm set free to find a new illusion. The character hasn't actually solved anything at all. Instead, they're just using something else to fill the hole inside without facing who they really are. Yeah. Well, then just go back to sex and drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I've been so free. 
together yeah doesn't it yeah it really does it's find a new illusion you just go into another place and that place is just that you, you just right back into it again yeah. really i'm sorry that is life that is life that is life unfortunately that is life <laughs> so remember they've been in la this whole time in california recording their third album and during their time there like they're there for months uh they're playing a lot of gigs in really cool spots mm-hmm. like the whiskey a go-go yeah yes so I think they had like a six-night residency there uh, around this time when uh, one of those nights they were playing their set just like normal, but the Velvets noticed someone being like a lot louder, a lot more, <laughs> let's say, just enjoying the show more than everyone else around him, mm-hmm. right? And and this person was just jumping up and down and banging on a beer mug and going, woo! <laughs> that guy was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Just really energetic Jimi Hendrix, who was just loving them and everything they were doing. And he came up to them and told them, like, dude, you guys really know how to rock, man. That was Jimi Hendrix saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it. And he's just he he kept going on and on about them. He's just like, I love what you're doing. Your music is phenomenal. You know, I'm a huge fan now. I can't believe you're not the biggest band in the world. How are you not? huge now yeah. like do, do you guys know frank zappa yeah yeah everyone's talking about him he's great and hey, how about jim morrison right wow wow right he's a huge star now didn't he like show up like yesterday <laughs> isn't that funny isn't that funny how that happens uh, anyway. and isn't he isn't he like fucking that girl that like used to be in your band yeah yeah i think so but right now he's busy he's at madison square garden sold out show but anyway you guys you guys are great though <laughs> to which the velvet underground are like yeah well thank you mm-hmm. uh jimmy hendrix <laughs> anyway we got to go play at this high school auditorium that we booked we we don't want to be late yeah so the doors and and jimmy hendrix and all them they're, they're killing it right now they're big stars and well respected and on the cover of magazines while lou is behind a curtain at a high school auditorium practically scowling (laughs) while the vice principal just lectures at him and the band like now i don't want any drug references in the songs these are young impressionable kids whatever you do is none of my business yes vice principal do not bring it here is that understood? Yes, vice principal. Okay, good. And Jimi Hendrix is having sex with like a million people <laughs> at the same time. He's like, bring that titty over here. I know there's coke on that. And Lou's like, I guess we're just going to have to be done by 3.30 today. <laughs> yeah, it's not a joke. They did. They were playing high school auditoriums. They were playing the Beverly Hills High School. They did. Oh, but that was because the student body president was a fan mm-hmm. uh, of the Velvet Underground and he actually sent in like a request and he got it I don't know how but he did get it approved and you remember Sesnick their their band manager was like yes yeah. any gig whatsoever let's make lots of money so the Velvet Underground played their set to an audience of high school students who were there for a mandatory assembly <laughs> 
And then afterwards, the band joined the school's music teacher for a panel about contemporary music with Mickey, the uh, student body president who brought them there, mm-hmm. and the school psychiatrist, ah. in which Lou's ears perked up a little bit. <laughs> and, and according to Mickey, it was a... It was an interesting panel. I bet. All right. Lou quickly got into a pissing match <laughs> with the school psychiatrist when the psychiatrist said, I did like your music, but it's too loud. It, uh-huh. it hurts the lab rats. Uh-huh. To which Lou responded with, uh, well, if I were a lab rat, then maybe I'd care. He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, not very zing. funny. <laughs> I, it's, I don't know. Maybe Mo was there with a symbol. <laughs> I don't know. Let's hope. <laughs> Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, by March of 1969, you know, Beverly Hills High School aside, it seemed like fortunes were turning around for the Velvet Underground. The third album was released to the best reviews of the band's career, yeah. including a glowing summation by Lester Bangs in Rolling Stone magazine. Woo! Bring yeah. me my thesaurus! <laughs> I'm Lester Bangs, and I'm ready to knock this out! Oh, how many, how many times can I say, amazing? <laughs> Beautiful, fantastic, everything I've ever wanted. Is Lou in love? <laughs> and while this album was definitely more accessible than the previous two, It is no less creative or artful. One could argue objectively that this record is the true expression of what Lou Reed intended the Velvet Underground to be. The problem with the release is that it didn't even get a chance to become a hit in 1969 because nobody could find the goddamn thing to love or hate it. The Velvets would play cities where they were starting to draw good crowds, but hardly anybody in the audience actually owned the new album. Nor could people new to the band buy the album at their local record store the next day. In a spectacular failure of distribution, MGM made it impossible for record stores to even order the album in the first place, much less make it available for reorder once their initial stock sold out. This was despite the fact that the promotional arm of MGM did a full print and radio ad push for The Velvet's third album. In other words, at MGM, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. Yeah, that's true. MGM Records, like like all the other major record labels, wanted to sell rock and roll albums because that's where the money is, right? In teenagers and kids' pockets. Mm-hmm. We're going to go take it from them. Always. So, so they threw a ton of money, and I mean millions of dollars, to promote something they called the Boss Town Sound. Oh. 
Okay, which means MGM signed about a dozen local rock bands from the Boston area and uh, pushed this promotion hard, thinking, oh, it's going to take off. Mm-hmm. It's going to take off real hard. And then it failed. Yeah. Oh, like Boston, like the Mighty Mighties? No, like L- Boston. Town. Oh, boss town. Because they're boss uh, in that town. <laughs> and it's, it's Boston, but boss town. Town, boss God, town. they had no fucking clue what they were doing. The, the late owl hour <laughs> presents the boss town sounds. Featuring the grass menagerie. I get it. I get it. It's all coming together now. <laughs> but yes, it did fail. MGM missed the mark and lost a lot of money due to poor record sales. Not to mention the record label is, was at this point constantly firing and hiring new music executives every few months because of the, of the lack of sales. So, like, I mean, they kept just messing up over and over again. They would keep trying to push someone or, or something new to see if they'll take, and it wouldn't. So yeah. then they would just hire the next guy, and then the next guy, and then it just, you know, like my dad always told me, you're only as good as your last quarter. Ah. Yes. So, apparently, they had a lot of bad quarters. Many, many, many yes, bad quarters. Yes, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Jim had no fucking clue what they were doing. I mean, this place was in such disarray that even though the Velvet Underground was one of the lowest-selling artists at the label, Steve Sesnick was able to sneak in expense accounts where they could get they could fly first class everywhere. They're being treated like a band that they're being treated like Hendrix by MGM, but MGM's not putting out any of their records because the Velvet Underground is is the lowest selling album that they fucking have. And royalties? Are we getting royalties? No, that's going to the first class tickets, you idiot. <laughs> oh. oh. Now, the obvious solution to MGM's mismanagement of the Velvet Underground was to just leave the record company. But as it was, the Velvets had signed to MGM when they were being managed by Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey, who weren't the most savvy people when it came to record contracts. Therefore, the Velvets were stuck for the time being. Now, at this point in the Velvet Underground's history, they've pretty much got everything going for them if you look at it in hindsight. (laughs) It's always that. (laughs) It's always that. Everything was great then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each of their first three albums are wildly influential in entirely different ways. They're equally important to multiple branches of the rock and roll tree. No other band can say that. But back then, it was impossible for the Velvet Underground to see that. Their audiences were not growing in any meaningful way, and they were finding themselves left out of all the big musical events of the time. Yeah, there was like this big time show uh, in the summer of 1969 called Woodstock. Called Woodstock. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and all the greatest bands took the stage that one fateful summer weekend, like The Who and Jefferson Airplane and Jimi Hendrix. Hey guys, why aren't you bigger? All right, are you guys coming? Are, no? Okay, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> all of them. Sly and the Family Stone. Yep, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, uh, legendarily the best set of the entire fucking festival. Oh, of course. And the band. There's just so many great ones and then oh hold on hold on uh i'm uh wait a second i am uh i've just received word that over at the hog farm acoustic stage <laughs> at the free tribal orchestra uh someone is there is tri- tribal music playing over there of tribal music performance going on with the original velvet underground drummer angus mclean <laughs> Yes. I don't know. I don't know. That. I, I don't know why I did a Howard Stern thing right there. I don't know. I, I feel like I should be in radio, but I, I don't deserve to be. Anyway, so so Angus McLeese was at 
Woodstock. He was the original yes. fucking drummer. Velvet Underground wasn't there, but fucking Angus McLean oh, man. He, was. He's at his topless. He's working the hand drums tight, and I and he's reaching inside his drum. Oh, what is this? Oh, oh wow, wow! It's another vegan dumpling. Everyone, <laughs> the crowd roars. There's electricity in the air. What a show! What a performance! What an experience! And it's still going. This is phenomenal. No one should be missing this. No one. <laughs> <laughs> and like Lou Reed's like just turning off the radio. Yeah. <laughs> oh fuck! Oh fuck you, Carol. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Carol. That's right. Make that a sticker. <laughs> Please, somebody make that a sticker. But they did play at the Boston Tea Party that same weekend. Yeah, in front of you know tens of people. <laughs> so that's that's not bad. I mean, at the very least, the doors weren't at Woodstock, so they didn't have to face that indignity. Right. Yeah. Or. You again, Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The doors were not, they were pointedly not invited. <laughs> because by this time, uh, by this time, like, Jim Morrison was completely losing it and was really uh, known as a difficult person. Right, right. But, but, so we'll, we'll just invite Mountain over. <laughs> it's better. Well, the Velvet Underground were not getting their due. And meanwhile, John Cale was not getting his due either. He still had a career after the Velvet Underground. He was struggling to be heard, even though he was helping to sculpt the sound of rock music for decades to come. While Lou Reed was singing to small audiences about some kind of love, John Cale was busy being the vampire-caped production mastermind behind the debut album from the Stooges. Oh, yes, that was the summer that John Cale only wore underwear <laughs> and a cape. <laughs> and a cape. I always, I don't know why the vampire, him wearing the vampire cape during the production of that album just stands out to me so much. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if you want to hear more about that full story, go listen to our series on the Stooges. We talk about it completely. Oh, yes, that's mm-hmm. right. And furthermore, the year before that, in 1968, late in 1968, John Cale had also fully produced Nico's sophomore album, the Marble Index. This one featured lyrics written by Nico herself after she was encouraged to do so by her newest paramour, Jim Morrison of the Doors. And while the Marble Index is a difficult, devastating listen, this peek into Nico's soul is one of the things that makes Nico interesting because Kale was able to help demonstrate just how shattered and complex Nico's interior world actually was. From behind my window screen Evening is dancing down the sea In a cruise parody Evening is dancing down the sea Up in the air, and no one is there. 
I mean, really, when you think about it, okay, so I love the Velvet Underground's third and fourth albums. Love those fucking songs, love those albums. But when you listen to what John Cale and Nico were doing together with the Marble Index, and think about if that original lineup of John Cale, Sterling Morrison, Lou Reed, Nico, impossible. and Mo- Impossible. They're, they're not from Long Island. <laughs> they're not from Long Island. They're European. It's impossible. Are you a Pisces? But if all if those people would have stayed together and would have continued to grow together and would have continued to work together, like it's uh, it boggles the mind to think of what they could have produced. Yeah. Um, it really does. I, it's, it's a fun musical what if. Yeah. Um, but that Marble Index, if you've never heard it yet yeah, it's you listen to it once That's at least all. unless you're going through a really cool victorian goth face <laughs> therefore that is your soundtrack that is absolutely your soundtrack make it your summer jam yes with nico <laughs> nico who ate my blueberry eggles this morning <laughs> nico i thought i told you to wash the frying pan <laughs> soaking it in soap and water doesn't count i was waiting to boil it on the stove <laughs> Who did you take care of the gas bill? <laughs> I don't know what I. Where am I? Where am I? Who am I? But while people were for the most part either refusing or were incapable of seeing the genius behind what Lou Reed and John Kell were respectively doing, there were people around the country who actually got it. Despite the small size of their crowds, the Velvet Underground was actually at the height of their powers as a live band, as is evidenced by the tracks recorded during this time period that ended up on this 1969 Velvet Underground Live collection. Here she comes You better watch your step say clown no no. <laughs> he's singing it wrong oh, yeah, it's clown you know what i realized when i was listening to the first album the other day is that two out of three of nico's songs both have the word clown in them uh-huh. i think they did it on purpose no <laughs> i i think it just rhymes of a lot of things <laughs> bring me my thesaurus wait no no that's my rhyming book, my rhyming book. <laughs> What's crazy is that in these live recordings, the reactions of the audiences are relatively lukewarm other than a few energetic woos from the diehards. One of those diehards, of course, will be the subject of our next series. 
And the audience sizes sound like they're no more than a couple of dozen people. Well, sometimes they're recorded uh, during like rehearsals, you know, or, or sound checks, or they start with five people in the room and then it, <laughs> and then it builds, you know, it's like, yeah. just start now. Maybe people will come inside. <laughs> Nevertheless, the songs recorded on 1969 Velvet Underground Live are still valuable documents featuring beloved versions of classic Velvet Underground tracks. I just realized I sound like one of the guys in the fucking late night, like 60, like the infomercials. Like the most beloved versions <laughs> of your favorite albums. <laughs> you could just lay down every Friday night and do nothing else but think about the past. <laughs> Be my baby, Chapel of Love, <laughs> and, and other classics. <laughs> and join our cruise where we will have boys to men. <laughs> Wait, that's later. <laughs> well, the version of this song right here was covered by the Cowboy Junkies in 1988. Here's Sweet Jane in all of its original sensitive glory. Yes! Anyone who ever had a heart Wouldn't turn around and break it And anyone who's ever played a part Turn around and hate it that song you know i love that song yeah of course who wouldn't it's such a sweet song all right it's an amazing both versions are it's one of those rare songs where both versions are equally good for different reasons yeah i agree with that all right so right now uh the velvet underground they're on the west coast they're back in san francisco they're doing gigs at every venue except the fillmore (laughs) uh, remember from before or they didn't want anything to do with bill i hope you fuckers bomb graham (laughs) Um, so the so the so the band they're playing at this other place, this much cooler, smaller venue maybe called the Matrix. Now one of the owners was a fan, so the Velvet Underground were invited to come play pretty much whenever they wanted or whenever they were available. Yeah. And not only that, but the owner would record their sets straight from the venue's four track recording equipment. That's cool. So a lot of recordings were made during those shows, including that one of Sweet Jane. Mm-hmm. And he's not the only one recording their sets, like. A lot of fans are actually coming up with extra recording because now this is like the late 60s. Now, finally, recording stuff, it becomes like it's not just like in a big box, in a big room or something. Now people are able to take it around with them, just regular people. So some of these fans are are, are putting up their like uh, their little recording device. Like, can I just put this on the stage for a little bit? You know, (laughs) is that okay? (laughs) And one notable person in particular was Robert Yes. Who was a super fan of the band at that time and who would also become an incredible musician and join the Voidoids with Richard Hell and play lead guitar on both Voidoids albums, uh, including our favorite Richard Hell classic. Remember? 
love comes, comes in spurts. spurts, which is not I. It's not. It's a working title, yeah. and and not just that. Well, well, one day, well, one of these days, we'll come up with a better title than No Dogs in Space. But right now, the working title is it's doing fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. We'll keep on. Yeah. We'll keep that for a while. Keep brainstorming for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and so Robert Klein, he would he would actually later on go uh, and work with Lou Reed because he became friends with the band and everything. He worked with Lou Reed much much later as a guitarist for Lou's uh, solo career on a couple of albums. You know. Have you ever heard of the Blue Mask? Mm-hmm. I mean, like some really great stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he toured with Lou for a couple of years uh, until he couldn't take it anymore. Because remember, as we said, Lou Reed can measure a good 3.5 out of 4 on the Eric Clapton nastiness scale. <laughs> <laughs> Quite nasty at times. <laughs> but that's later, much later history. Yeah. Right now, right here, it's 1969. Robert Quine is a 20-year-old guy who's bringing in his Sony cassette recorder with a handheld microphone. Kind of like the one uh, where the kid in uh, Almost Famous was holding the interview people for Rolling Stone magazine. Just like that. And he's recording as many Velvet Underground sets as he possibly can, which is lucky because that's part of how, like, the Velvet Underground continued to have such a large following for decades, you know, because of the bootleg tapes. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that bootleg, bootlegging is not. It's all fine and dandy all the time. We've talked about a lot about bootlegging over the course of this, yeah. you know, this show. But as I said before, back then it was the beginning of recording stuff. So that was pretty cool. So now we have moments in time captured because of these fans like Robert Quine. Yeah. So we got 1969 Velvet Underground Live, the bootleg series volume one, mm-hmm. uh, which which was recorded by Robert Quine as well. And the complete Matrix tapes all at this time. This is the, the Velvet Underground era. And as we said before, they're so much better live. And this is just like the next best thing we can do, even though it doesn't sound perfect and everything, because it's still 1969. <laughs> yeah, it's 1969. And there's these aren't really, these aren't always soundboard recordings. Some of them are. But yeah, a lot of times, yeah, it's a fucking nerd with a tape recorder. And that's not going to be <laughs> the best sound quality all the time. And it works. It works this time. Yeah. Now, by the time spring turned to summer in 1969, the Velvet Underground had figured out that they could get out of their recording contract with MGM by just recording a bunch of songs, even if those songs were never released. Yeah, I think uh, Mo said that it, that was th- their manager's plan to do that, and uh, but Doug had no idea, so it, it's a little bit muddled of why they exactly did it, but it just kind of seemed like they had to like complete a contract. It's too muddled, yeah, yeah. and it's you know, and these recordings they're known as the lost album session. They contain songs neither terrible nor spectacular. I mean, there's some pretty good ones here, but really the point is, is that it got the band out of a bad situation. And while they did lose the recordings to MGM, they didn't lose the songs. One of the songs first recorded during the Lost Album Sessions would be the anchor for the next and last proper Velvet Underground album. And this song encapsulates Lou Reed's belief that rock and roll not only saved his life, but was capable of saving anyone who needed it. As we said in the first episode, Lou took the rock and roll radio that he heard broadcasting out of New York City as proof that life existed on Earth. And to drive this point home, he wrote one of the most joyous celebrations of music to ever be put on vinyl. For a band who has such a reputation for being dour, rock and roll is, I think, the final word on the power of the genre of rock, the medium of radio, and just how powerful the two of those things were together for half a century. That Gina said when she was just about five years old, hey, you know, there's nothing happening at all. Not at all. Every time I put on the radio, you know there's nothing going down at all. Not at 
Actually, I think my life was saved by the song that was about the song, but life being saved by rock and roll. That's, that song means a lot to me. Aww, yeah. <laughs> it really does. That, that, that song means a fuck of a lot to me. It really does. It was the last song I ever played on college on on FM radio, you know, like that. That when that's you how I signed off for the last time. Yeah, but my when I signed off for the last time, when I you know ended my FM radio career, that was the song that I played because it meant so much to me. Because rock and roll radio did mean a lot. It it it. I knew exactly what Lou Reed meant when he said that it was proof of life on other planets, um, and that song is just it's the encapsulation of that. It just gives it to you perfectly it's a i mean i think it's a it's that song is a, an historical document like yeah. a, that people can look at years later and say like wow that this really did mean a lot to people at one point in time it's a, a cultural document as well so yeah i fucking love rock and roll and i love loaded let's yeah. get into it yeah we should get it yeah. <laughs> let's get into it let's do it okay yeah let's okay so, <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> misty getting misty here okay so now it's spring of 1970 and they're finally done with MGM or MGM is done with them yeah either way it's okay because the Velvet Underground signed a two album deal with Atlantic Records so the Velvet Underground they start recording songs for their new album this time with a real intention to get a pop hit out of it because they, they were tired of getting by it's been years and and they just they finally want to get to the next level just something because like Doug Yule he's 21 22 he doesn't really give a shit but Lou Reed Sterling Morrison Mo Tucker like they're getting sick of just fucking scraping they, especially Lou Reed especially Lou Reed yes because he's been counting on being a rock star but but to get all the things he needed to get there, he needed to catapult the Velvet Underground to the mainstream, to have their songs play on the radio and their albums actually stocked in the record store. <laughs> you know, plus Lou was always about like the soft and pretty songs that we know, of course, as long as there were lyrics of his choosing and on his terms. So to get what they wanted out of it, they recorded their next album and called it Loaded, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a double entendre. Oh, it's very clever. Of being loaded, mm -hmm. of course, and that promise that this album would be loaded with hits. <laughs> fucking get it, you yes. fucking morons. Like this song, which hopefully was going to be their next single, Who Loves the Sun? Who loves the sun? Who cares that? Makes plants grow Who cares what it does Since you broke my heart Who loves the wind Who cares that It makes breezes Who cares what it does Since you broke my There's a lot of questions. <laughs> you're right. Is it rhetorical? Yeah. <laughs> now you're right. You're right. There are a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was definitely the question that I had in college when I first heard this album was, "Whoa!" Because I heard this album the second after the Velvet Underground and Nico. How the fuck did this become that? Well, 
Well, we'll, we'll tell you. Yeah. We're, we're telling you now. <laughs> so by the time they got to recording Loaded in April of 1970, Mo Tucker had to step away from the band because she got pregnant. Mm. Congratulations. <laughs> Happy day. It's a girl. But that also meant that she wasn't going to play on this album. So while she was at home in Long Island taking care of her pregnancy, Lou and the rest of the band were left in the studio without their most reasonable person. <laughs> you see, if there was one thing the band could possibly agree on, it was that Mo was great. Yeah, She was straightforward. She's honest. She was a calming force between all these manic egos, especially Lou Reed's. Like, they... They really missed her. A, a lot of times they have said over and over again, we should have waited for Mo to have her baby. Yeah, everyone agreed on that. Yes, yes, especially Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> they all wanted her, they needed her. And, yeah. and, and Sterling Morrison, he's still quietly resenting Lou. He's been doing it for this whole time. He's losing his invested interest in it. And, and, and so Sterling decided to go back to school and finish his degree while recording Loaded. <laughs> so he's got other things on his plate. Yeah. So he, he pretty much pops in the studio, says, hey, do you guys need me to record anything? No? Okay, I'll see you later. Call me when it's my turn. And then there's Doug Yule, who's the newer guy. Like you said, he's younger. He steps up. He takes a more active role in helping arrange and polish the songs for the album with Lou, and as well as playing the piano, the organ, and, and drums on some of the songs since Mo is out. Uh, there's actually four drummers credited on this album yeah. uh, to, to fill in Mo's shoes. Like uh, There was Doug, and then Doug's younger brother, Billy, uh, their recording engineer, and a session drummer who was, whose name no one could remember. It was like, Tommy something. But Tommy. they couldn't remember his last name, so on the record, he seriously is just like, and Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fill it in later. We will, yeah, we, will yeah. we will. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So they were just, the, the band, were they were just focused on recording songs for the radio. Yeah. So they approached it differently this time. This time, they're tracking the songs with lots of layering. That means they're recording a few instruments at a time and then adding to it, uh, layering, that is. Mm -hmm. That's why Sterling was like, I'll be back later if, if I'm not needed here. So gone are the days of, uh, let's all do this together. Everyone's playing their own thing. We're doing it live all at once. And then, and then press record, and once it's done, it's done. No, now it's going to be a lot more methodical. Yeah, and they lose a lot when they do that. They lose the rawness of the Velvet Underground. And since they're more focused on doing a hit than anything else, uh, Loaded is massively uneven. Yeah, yeah, it can be. But it was only because, like, we got to make this in three minutes or less. <laughs> no one's going to play this song. Yeah, and there are some of my favorite under Velvet Underground songs on this album, but there are also some of my least favorite ones that are just like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, in addition to all the other duties on Doug Yule's plate, he also sang half the songs on Loaded, including Who Loves the Sun. In addition, he also sang one of the best tracks in the entire Velvet Underground catalog, appropriately the last song on the last album. Now, you mentioned Candy Says earlier, I think this song is the best drunk on the edge of maudlin at 4 a.m. song to ever be recorded. I'll fight you. I'll fight you on that. <laughs> What'd you say about me? No. It's oh, a, okay. It, we'll just sit in this bathtub and talk about it all day. <laughs> I'm talking, of course, about Oh Sweet Nothing. later said that that song was actually supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I guess if, if it was sung in a very like sarcastic tone, like he's making fun of all those people, then I guess it could be uh, seen as such. But if you just have the lyrics on a paper and Doug Yule, the, you hand Doug Yule the lyric sheet and say, here, do this, like he's going to sing it how he sings it. And it ended up being a extremely sincere heartfelt song (laughs) just so full of emotion it meant to be ironic it meant to be ironic the whole time now as opposed to the third album in which Doug was chosen to sing Candy Says because he was the best man for the job Yule took the lead on Oh Sweet Nothing because Lou Reed's voice couldn't handle singing all the songs the reason behind this blowout was that manager Steve Sesnick had stupidly booked the Velvet Underground into a 10-week residency at Max's Kansas City in Manhattan at the same time that the band was recording Loaded. Yeah. Yeah, th- that, that was all Sesnick's plan. This is such a manager move. Everything was his plan. While everyone is too distracted with being pissed off at each other, <laughs> Sesnick is pulling the strings. You know, it used to be Lou and Sesnick doing all the planning and everything, but now it's just Sesnick running the show and, and telling the Velvets what to do while he's literally collecting money at the door yeah. while the group bitterly soldiers on. <laughs> because, I mean, they're recording an album and then they're doing... 10 weeks of shows, a 10-week residency in the summer of 1970 where they took the stage 
at Max's Kansas City five nights a week, two sets a night. It's insane. It wasn't it only supposed to be like two weeks at first? Yeah, but it went so well. Then why not? Yeah, yeah. 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 Why not? Let's, why not? let's add why? some more weeks. Come on, guys. You're leaving money. You're, come on. You're just leaving money behind. Come on. Just, just do it. Come on. It'll be great. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what makes this run of shows memorable is that it was the Velvet Underground's return to New York City. Yeah. Remember, they're from there. They live there, but they didn't play there for almost three years. Yeah. Because I, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't play it on the radio. Yeah. So yeah. This is better. This is we're gonna get the the whole country to like like us, and then we're gonna hit New York. Well, you know what? Plans have changed. Plans have changed. And also, this is very memorable because this was the first time that Max's Kansas City started opening up their upstairs room for live music shows. So now it's starting to become a real rock and roll venue. For, I mean, a tiny one. Yeah, t- at, very at, tiny. At, at, at that. Yeah. So if I'm correct, and I'm not sure, but I think that the Velvet Underground were the first band to play upstairs at Max's Kansas, and the Beastie Boys and Bad Brains were the last bands to play at Max's. So this is kind of like a bookend that we're, that we're doing. <laughs> that we're doing. That's fucking insane. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. So, but right now, right now in 1970, it's just the beginning, right? And it's like, yeah, wouldn't it be fun to do this or anything but a comedy night? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it is a very small and intimate setting. It's about like 25 people in the audience most nights, which is cool because there was room for people to dance and, and talk and order drinks and hang <laughs> out. I mean, it was very fun, but very local, like no big deal kind of thing, yeah. which actually sounds like a really fun time. With the Velvet Underground there as part of your entertainment for the evening. But things aren't fun for Lou Reed right now. No. Not even close. Lou was absolutely exhausted from not only doing the shows, but also recording Loaded. He was only sleeping about six hours a week and eating very little. While Sterling Morrison was busy reading Victorian novels for school backstage between shows. And he wasn't speaking to Lou at all because Sterling was mad at Lou about something. These are the coolest people you'll ever meet. (laughs) In fact, nobody was really speaking to Lou, and therefore nobody had any real idea just how bad things were getting in Lou's head. Lou had come to hate Steve Sesnick for pushing him into the Maxis shows, and Lou was starting to notice that Steve was pitting Doug against Lou, just like Steve had pitted Lou against John Cale. Well, I heard this. Yes. It's a lot of that, and it's like, well, you know, I think you're great. I don't care what they think. It's just like, geez, Louise, like you remind me of this, like these two 13 year old girls when I was in grade school. That's them. Yeah. Well, worst of all was the fact that Maureen wasn't there to calm Lou down. By the time she finally made it out to one of the Max's shows, she saw, in her estimation, an entirely different band. Most of the songs were the same, but there were really only two members of the Velvet Underground on stage. While it was a nice, tight little band, it wasn't the Velvet Underground. Yeah, well, in Lou's mind, it definitely wasn't. It, it, and to Mo and to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Lou is the leader and the principal songwriter in this band. He made up his mind long ago that he was going to do things his way, even with, yes, of course, contributions from others. Yes, but it was going to be on his terms. Yeah. But it wasn't working out that way anymore. And and then it hit Lou. Like, I, 
I'm not doing what I want to do. I, I'm not playing the songs I want. I'm being told what to do by my manager. And I don't believe in this and, and what we're doing. Why, am I some sort of dancing monkey? Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's am I here thing. for your amusement? Am I some kind of clown? Exactly. Yeah. He, he was like, a, he was feeling like very uncomfortable and very, very controlled. Yeah. Which is funny because as we know, He's a very controlling person. Yes. So this this was tough for him to come to that realization. Yeah. And it was true because Sesnick did unravel the Velvet Underground pretty much in the last 18 months. Yeah. He got into Lou's ear and love bombed him with flattery like, you're going to be the next Beatles. Yes, I feel it. I know it. Just stick with me. And then Sesnick would isolate him from his friends and bandmates to the point where Lou could only depend on Sesnick. But then when Sesnick saw that Lou wasn't doing well and proving to be too difficult to handle... Sesnick turned on Lou. Yeah. He told Lou, I don't care about you. I don't care if you live or die. He explicitly told him, I don't fucking care if you live or die. And then Sesnick focused his attention on Doug Yule, who was easier to deal with. Yeah. And soon enough was starting to introduce Doug as the next Paul McCartney. Ah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And while Lou is feeling like, am I getting older? (laughs) He's feeling very replaced here. Yeah. So by the ninth week of the Max's Kansas City residency, on a Sunday night on August 23rd, Lou Reed made a decision that was about to change everything. Yeah. He showed up and performed like any other night, but this time would be the last time. Yep. And this time they were going to play the songs that he felt like playing, like lots of ballads, some torch songs, sentimental stuff, like Pale Blue Eyes, you know, that, that beautiful yeah. little song that he wrote about Shelly, yeah. his college sweetheart who he still kept in touch with. All these years. All these years, yeah. (laughs) Since college, they broke up six years before, but they kept calling each other and talking to... Well, he kept bothering her, really. He he still wanted her. He still wanted her back constantly. He wanted her friendship. But she was married to someone else. And she always kept Lou at arm's length throughout their whole friendship. And then there was also Femme Fatale, the song about Edie Sedgwick that Lou wrote during the times they hung out at the factory. But by then... Edie had left Andy Warhol and the factory and had been hospitalized in a psych ward due to heavy emotional issues in drug addiction. The next year, she'll be found dead in her bedroom of an overdose of barbiturates. And then Andy Warhol, you know, the one who encouraged Lou to write Femme Fatale, the one who told him to write 10, 20 songs a day. And he was the first artist who gave the Velvet Underground a real chance when no one believed in them. And then there's the first song Lou wrote in college during that time where he was deciding whether to be a literary luminary like his mentor, Delmore Schwartz, or a rock and roller. At first, that song sounded like any other folk song at the time until John Cale came along and helped shape it and contribute to the sound of the Velvet Underground, something that would have never worked without John. And that song was, of course, I'm Waiting for the Man. And here is that song as it was performed that night. Lou Reed's last night on stage with the Velvet Underground for many, many years. After the show, Lou ran into Mo, 
because she already had her baby two months ago and she wanted to come out and check out the show, like you said, and say hi to everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, how's it going? Oh, gosh, this is bad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> because Lou took her outside. They went up the steps. They sat down and he just told her, like, I, I just can't do this anymore. He was like a nervous wreck. And, and he knew the only answer was to quit. I mean, why keep doing something you don't believe in anymore? Yeah. And that night, while Sterling read his novels for school, Lou unexpectedly came up to him and said, Hey, Sterling, I want to introduce you to Sidney and Toby Reed, my parents. <laughs> Which Sterling thought, that was weird. <laughs> Since they never came around and Lou didn't like talking about them. But hey, here they are. Yeah. And that's because they were there to pick Lou up and take him home again. Because it just seemed like Lou needed some peace. Yeah, he did. Now, once Lou left the band, he retreated to the same place he'd gone every time his life had become too much to handle. He went to his parents' home in Long Island, had another nervous breakdown, recovered, and then worked briefly as a typist in his father's accounting firm for $40 a week. After Loaded. Meanwhile, Loaded was finished without Lou Reed and released on September 23, 1971. Mixed, edited, and ordered in ways that drove Reed crazy for years. A melody was taken out of Sweet Jane here. New Age had an ending cut away there. And worst of all, from Lou's perspective, the songs were out of order completely. But at the time, none of it mattered that much because Atlantic refused to push an album for a band that was missing its principal singer and songwriter. No tours, nor interviews could be done, and therefore, there was no promotional push. As a result, The Velvet's most commercial, FM-friendly album didn't even chart, and it took a full six months for even a single to be pulled from the track list, despite the band's most positive reviews to date. Now, the Velvet Underground name continued for one more album, basically a Doug Yule solo record called Squeeze. The less it about that, the better. But the real tragedy is that the Velvets quit just when people were starting to catch up. See, probably the most common phrase used in reference to the Velvet Underground is before their time. But when people say that, they're not talking decades. Really, it was just a few years. See, by 1970, It was becoming apparent to most people that the peace and love revolution had failed. And once 1971 hit, the biggest musicians in the world were starting to acknowledge the pitfalls that the Velvets had seen from the beginning. However, these acknowledgments weren't positive or negative. Musicians were just starting to move further into reality. And that acceptance of reality is part of the reason why 1971 was such a legendary year for rock music. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's just do a short list. Oh, is it going to be short? (laughs) Let's see. I'm going to make it as short as I can. All right. Hunky Dory, What's Going On, Metal, Led Zeppelin 4, Tapestry, There's a Riot Going On, Master of Reality, Electric Warrior, Maggot Brain, Tago Mago, Songs of Love and Hate, Nilsson Smilson, Surf's Up, The Shaft Soundtrack, Just As I Am, Killer, and Coat of Many Colors. That's just a few of the albums that came out in 1971. I didn't hear the Osmonds. (laughs) They were also there. I I didn't hear it. We got to add them to our list, unfortunately. Well, this was music that's raw. It's full of emotion and pain. It's shit that's real and weird at the same time with brilliantly written lyrics and music. You want a fucking album that's raw and weird and real? Listen to Maggot Brain and have your fucking mind blown. This is when rock music as a whole grew up. But all of it also trailed the Velvet Underground by about five years. 
See, by 1971, people have been discovering the Velvet Underground's catalog and wondering why everybody in the world didn't know who this band was. And had the Velvet Underground kept going, I think that the 70s sound might have been wildly different due to a larger Velvet Underground influence. But even as it is now, the influence of the Velvet Underground on the music scene at large still puts them as one of the top 10, possibly top five most influential rock bands to ever exist. Yeah, that's true. Without the Velvet Underground, you might not have David Bowie, whose musical perspective was entirely shifted in 1966 when he somehow got a hold of an acetate of the Velvet Underground's first album before it was even released to the public. He was 19 when he first heard it, and he loved the fact that the music didn't care if he liked it or not. <laughs> it could not give a fuck. <laughs> he, he said, it, he said it, it opened my suburban eyes to a world yet unseen. Yeah. Wow. Sonic Youth, Joy Division, Flaming Lips, Talking Heads, Brian Eno, fucking Nirvana, all of them have cited the Velvet Underground as a main influence. And it's not hyperbole to say that these bands simply wouldn't exist in the way we know them without the Velvet Underground. Now, as far as what the band did after they broke up, Sterling Morrison got a PhD in medieval literature from the University of Texas, then became a tugboat captain in Houston and did that all throughout the 80s. Well, yeah, because when you get a degree in medieval literature in Texas, <laughs> it's not, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, if you're going to get one, get it at UT. Don't get it at, at, at like A&M or Texas Tech or something. Get it at UT. You might be able to do something. Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, Sterling Morrison died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1995 at the age of 53. John Cale, though continues playing and releasing music to this day on facebook yeah <laughs> i mean i mean he he releases it in better places but sometimes yeah. he he puts up a thing it's some it's cute it's cute it's I love very it. cute i got i got to see him oh god 10 years ago 15 no about 15 years ago i got to see him live uh he played venus and furs uh on the viola it was a mind-bending experience Maureen Tucker has played drums on and off over the decades for bands like Half Japanese. Cool. And that's all Maureen Tucker's done. Don't need to talk about anything else. Uh, Mo is doing her own thing. <laughs> she's, she's, whatever she's doing. She's doing her own thing. Yes. She's, she's got her own life going. But poor Nico fell into deep heroin addiction for 15 years. And just as she was getting her life together in 1988, she died in a freak bicycle accident in her beloved Ibiza, wear a helmet. But out of all of the members of the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed was the one who truly got what he wanted. After one solo record that went nowhere, Lou Reed struck gold with his second. Yes. Transformer. Oh, that's the one. That was the introduction. That's how, that's how I know about everything now. <laughs> that was the album that got me in. That's it. It's amazing. Yes. Just a perfect day Drink sangria in the park And then later When it gets dark we go home Just a perfect day Feed animals in the zoo then later, a movie too, and then home. Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with 
messed up. Mm, that guy loves love. <laughs> he loves love. He's not nice to people. No. <laughs> but at least uh, he, he, he could write. Yes, he can. Produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson, of course. And for the lead single from Transformer, Reed drew on his deep well of real-life characters, populating his only top ten hit with former Warhol factory superstars like Holly Woodlawn and the aforementioned Candy Darling. Written in, when? 1971. And released in 1972, Lou Reed finally became the rock and roll star he'd always yearned to be with Walk on the Wild Side. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Candy came from out on the island. She was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 With that song, Lou Reed proved that he was fucking right the whole time. Yes. About what? <laughs> he got a top 10 hit with the line, but she never lost her head even when she was giving head. That's poetry. <laughs> That's poetry. I, I hope I hope someone used the line on him, you are a poet, and you didn't even know you it. You didn't even know yes, it. Yes, I hope I hope someone said that to him. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's I cool. Mean, it's cool. It's I like cool. it. I mean, he's like full on just saying like, yeah, she was cool even when she was giving blowjobs. Like it's, that's in there. It's in the fuck. It was on the radio and there was no moral panic about Walk on the Wild Side as far as I know. That's one of the most popular rock songs to ever exist. Yes. <laughs> it is on classic rock. I can fucking turn on WCBS tonight and probably hear Walk on the Wild Side. So Lou Reed finally achieved the thing that he wanted to do was was pretty much get like William S. Burroughs or, 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 or other uh, Hubert Selby or Naked Lunch and all those, those kind of books into a rock and roll song yeah. that will actually be played on the radio and everyone is fine with it. <laughs> It's how long it took. It's great. It took a long time, but yeah, he fucking did it. But if we're talking true legacy here, the influence of the Velvet Underground was best defined by Sterling Morrison himself. He said that the Velvet Underground encourages people to do what they feel like doing, use whatever instruments they feel like using, and play whatever songs they feel like playing. It was music that Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Maureen Tucker made for themselves. And Doug. And Doug Yule, yeah, sure. But in the process, inspired countless others to do the same. So I think this makes them the first, and ironically, 
the most positively influential alternative band to ever exist. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? <laughs> they're actually this band that is seen as so negative and dour. I think there's like a really positive influence on people. <laughs> it's, it, it's that whole thing of like, do what you believe in and eventually people will come to terms with it. Yeah. I've uh, Vel- Velvet Underground was always a really positive influence on me. Always. They've been there with me through the hardest periods of my life. Always. So thank you, Velvet Underground. Yeah. And thank, thank you, you. everybody for listening. That's Velvet Underground Part 5. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's close this chapter now. <laughs> Listen, I have some credits to, to give. To go, give. Go right I, As I said, the, the books that were used, the books that were used very well. <laughs> Believe me, there's lots of bookmarks and, and outlines and highlights everywhere. Uh, White Light, White Heat. The Velvet Underground Day by Day by Richie Unterberger. The Velvet Underground Companion. Four decades of commentary compiled by Albin Zach III. Transformer. The Complete Lou Reed Story by Victor Vakris. Uptight. The Velvet Underground Story by Victor Vakris and Gerald Merlanga. The Life of Lou Reed. Notes from the Velvet Underground by Howard Soons. Lou Reed by Anthony DeCurtis. Okay, I'm halfway through. <laughs> 33 and a third. The Velvet Underground and Nico by Joe Harvard. What's Welsh for Zen? By John Cale, of course, yep. and Victor Bacris. Nico, Life and Lies of an Icon by Richard Witz. That's a great book. Okay. That's a really fun book. And uh, Popism, The Warhol 60s by Andy Warhol and Pat Hackett. That's a fun book, but it just kind of reads like a diary. Like, dear diary, today I had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Warhol by Blake Gopnik, which is great, but it's so extensive. Yeah. Like, it's very extensive. And then one of my favorite new books, Chronicles, Volume 1 by Bob Dylan. And, of course, the uh, Velvet Underground webpage maintained by Oliver Landmain. I, I hope I'm saying this right, his name right. <laughs> it was really, really helpful. It was amazing. It was fantastic. I, I checked out a lot of interviews on YouTube, of course. And uh, if you want to check out any further reading, because as we said before, we cannot be completists because we don't have like a million hours to do everything about the Velvet Underground. Check out My Week Beats Your Year, Encounters with Lou Reed, compiled by Michael Heath and edited by Pat Thomas. My Week Beats Your Year is fucking great. It's really, really fun. And I want to give a big, big thank you to uh, Patrick Fisher, uh, my buddy and research assistant. He's great. He helped out immensely with the White Light, White Heat book and the Fluxus Movement stuff, and as well as Andy Warhol. He was super helpful throughout this whole process. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, if you guys don't know, uh, we got some Mm t-shirts. We got some No Dogs t-shirts. We got the the regular classic one, and then we got a new really cool one that's been coming out lately. It's awesome. I love it. Um, I got to get one. Yeah, we both got to get one. We actually don't have one. One. So, yeah. Yeah. Check out the uh, Last Podcast merch store. Uh, LastPodcastMerch.com. Thank you. And we have an Instagram at No Dogs Pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll give you some updates on stuff, of course, and, and maybe we'll post some like fun things about it yeah. as well, and, of course. And if you want to join our Patreon, you can go to Patreon.com slash No Dogs for extra content. And, of course, uh, you'll get notifications when a new series starts back up again. Because Ooh. we're actually now at the end of the Velvet Underground series. That means that we're going to start work on our next artist it's going to be Jonathan Richmond. Yes. It's going to be the modern lovers. Yes. We're going to do, I mean, it's only, it only makes sense that we would go from the Velvet Underground into the modern lovers. Uh, but it's going to be a couple of months us working on that. Uh, but make sure to uh, join our Patreon and you will get a notification when 
that series drops. Yes, and you'll get some extra stuff as well, of course, uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, oh, and, and then we got new arrivals, of course. Yeah, new arrivals. It's a Patreon-only show where we uh, talk about uh, the music news that's going yeah. on right now. Yeah, the and music just... news and us just, just hanging out and having a more relaxed talk about yeah. music and uh, just, just, just hanging around with us. Super casual show. And, of course, now that we're at the end of the episode, we got to get to the band of the week. And if you have a band, send us an email, nodogsinspace at gmail.com, and let us know uh, what you got going on. We love hearing from the local bands out there that are doing really fucking cool shit. And today's band is doing some really, really awesome shit. I love this band. They're called Pet Mosquito. They're out of Carbondale, Illinois. Cool. Uh, they're a bunch of fucking dishwashers. I love uh, it. I love all of this. <laughs> they're very cool. They said that they're influenced by like the Dead Boys, the Saints, Sonic Youth. Uh, it's really catchy stuff. It's really fun. Check them out on Spotify. Uh, this song is called I Hate Illinois Nazis. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really fun. This is off of their uh, newest album called The Last Goosebumps Walk Away. Uh, it's it's fucking it's 23 minutes of fucking bangers. So check it out. Uh, we really hope that y'all enjoy it. And we hope that y'all enjoyed this series as much as we enjoyed doing it. And uh, and thanks for you know being along with us the entire ride. Yeah. So here's uh, I Hate Illinois Nazis from Pet Mosquito. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.